Looks like we almost had a traffic jam there. <laughs> Happy New Year. Seems like so long since I last preached you. I haven't seen you guys since last year. Just, yeah, thank you. The groans, the eye rolls, just, just make, my, make my life. They really do. It's sad, sick, but true. Uh, this morning, uh, a little bit in a transition, finished Colossians, uh, we'll be starting uh, a study in Genesis, more, probably more next month, beginning in February, a little bit of a transition, Lord willing, at the end of this, we have five weeks this month, uh, but prior to that, I uh, wanted to do a, a mini-series, four parts, uh, on, on what, we're, what we would refer to as the sacraments, divided into four questions. This is the same format that I use when we teach what we call our sacraments class. For those who are interested in pursuing baptism, using these same questions. So if you've gone through that class, hopefully there's at least something that sounds familiar in this uh, because you've heard me teach through these things before. Four questions that we ask and seek to answer for anyone young or old seeking to pursue baptism to make sure that we've had a chance to cover these different things for that. Uh, and so over the next four weeks, uh, we plan to cover these four questions. Uh, what is the gospel? What is a sacrament? That's next week. What do we believe about the sacrament of baptism? And what do we believe about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Those being the two sacraments that we, we hold to and find taught in Scripture. And today, we're going to start on the first of those, what is the gospel? Uh, now, we could answer this in a number of different ways. Not all of them would be correct, obviously, right? You can have wrong answers to questions, but that doesn't mean that everybody would word the correct answer to that the same way. So I'm going to give an answer. We'll review that in a minute. Uh, two lengthy sentences packed full of things that we'll then take the rest of our time to unpack. Um, don't do it now, but it would be a good exercise for you to write an, your own answer to this question uh, to be able to do that. Hopefully it's not something like, oh, I've never thought of that before. Uh, what, what is the gospel? I, I hope it's something that we think about frequently, but it would be good for you whether it's, you don't have to memorize the answer that I give. I don't even know I have the, this exact answer memorized, although I happen to have written it down. Uh, but it would be good for you to have an answer to this. And as we go into this question, perhaps you're thinking like, oh, well, that's a basic one. I thought I'd learned something new. I thought I'd learned something more interesting today than just this most basic of questions. Uh, maybe I can tune out on this one. Uh, well, if that would be your response, I, I would seek to chastise you as strongly as possible uh, with an arrogance to think that you've learned enough about the gospel. Uh, if you, you've heard it enough that it's, it's boring, maybe you need to hear it one more time. Uh, when, when something that becomes, it's, it's, it's like water. Maybe it seems boring, but just try going without it and see how well that goes. Uh, because we need the gospel as much as we need air, as much as we need water. It is that living water that satisfies like we sang about together today. Uh, so let me pray for each of us, whether it's, you know, I have no idea what the gospel is, or oh, I've heard this a thousand times, maybe I can check out. We're, hopefully we're on neither of those poles, but wherever we are in the middle, I do want to pray for us. Our God and Heavenly Father, the gospel is, is your message as we will talk about. I pray that you would give each of us ears to hear, um, that there would be a freshness to these wonderful, familiar truths of who Jesus is and what he has done for us for now and for eternity. Um, only you can do this work. We are desperately needy of you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What is the gospel? Here's the answer that we're going to work through this morning. The gospel is the good news proclaimed in scripture of salvation from God's punishment of our sins through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ alone, we are reconciled to God and receive forgiveness, justification, adoption, and the hope of eternal life. Uh, Unless you are furiously good at shorthand, you're not going to have gotten all that, and that's okay. But we are going to go phrase by phrase if you'd like to write it down. I don't know how you want to take notes today. What is the gospel? The gospel, uh, this sentence, these sentences start off, the gospel is the good news. Uh, That's what the word gospel actually means. If you've heard something of evangelist or evangelize or evangel, we used to go to church called Evangel Baptist Church. That's just what we would then translate to good news or gospel. All three of those are just different ways of saying the same thing. So the gospel means good news. Uh, I remember just about two years ago, January of uh, would have been 2021, sitting in the waiting room at Women and Children's Hospital uh, while our six-month-old son James went through about an eight- to nine-hour skull reconstruction surgery. Did you catch that? A six-month-old going through a lengthy surgery like that. I, I can picture that waiting room. I remember being there. I remember the feelings that I had about what was that. Have you ever been in that kind of a scenario? Maybe not six-month-old in that type of surgery, but some type of a situation uh, just waiting. And you're sitting there, and you're helpless, Uh, And you're wondering what will happen. And you're eager to know what's going on. Uh, Maybe you were a grandparent waiting recently in a waiting room for news about uh, whether your grandson would be born safely or not. Or standing nearby, wondering if your son would be born safely or not. But we find ourselves in helpless type situations, wondering what's going on. And I remember sitting in the waiting room at Women's and Child- Women and Children's Hospital, wondering what was going on with James, trying to read or do something else, but still like thinking about what was happening to my son. And I remember the neurosurgeon coming out after an hour or two, and she brought me good news. And the surgery had gone well. James was continuing to progress well through this surgery. And so I was just delighted. Because when you see that person coming in to speak to you, sometimes it's like we've got good news. Sometimes it's we've got bad news. Right? So we can see ourselves in those situations. But the gospel message is a message of good news. The best news actually. It's the gospel is the good news proclaimed in scripture. Where do we find this good news? Where do we learn about the gospel? If it's the good news that is the best news, uh, we need to know that it's reliable from its source, right? Uh, Even though the gospel normally comes to us through friends or parents or pastors, it first and foremost comes from the Bible or what we could call the scriptures, Uh, Paul writes about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, speaking about the Bible. He says that it is the scriptures, it is the Bible that is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful summary that is of why we have the scriptures. That God in his mercy has given us his wisdom to counter our folly that we might be wise to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's important to know where we're getting it from and, and what that source is. That the, This is a message, this is a good news 
proclaimed in God's word or found in God's word because it's really, it's God's message about what God has done. And it's not salvation of what, what we have done or what someone else has done, but it's a message about what God has done. So we must hear from him about what he has done to provide our salvation. And when we say that it's good news proclaimed in Scripture, we also need to kind of keep in mind, and this would, you know, so many of these could be their own sermons. We'd spend the rest of the year just working through these things. Not my plan. But it's not just the message of the New Testament. Right? It's proclaimed in Scripture as a whole, Old and New Testament. Matter of fact, the clearest reference to what Paul's talking about when he says that the Scriptures are able to make us wise to salvation, I mean, he's thinking... First and foremost, that Old Testament scriptures, where we see the promises made about, uh, about salvation that would come, and then we see that fulfilled in the New Testament scriptures. So it's not like only some of the Bible gives us the gospel. The entirety of the Bible reveals the gospel to us. We must keep that in mind. It was promised in the old. It was fulfilled in the new. It's this good news that we find proclaimed in scripture, what is the good news? As it's not that there's a victory in battle, and it's not that there's a good surgery that went through. What is the good news? Well, it's the good news of salvation. And when you hear the word salvation, it can be another place where, and there's a few of these type of words or ideas where we could be tempted to kind of uh, maybe check out because of that familiarity. So when you hear salvation, don't just think Bible word. <laughs> Oh yeah, that, 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 that Christian word, salvation. We talk about it all the time. So I, can, I find it helpful with some of those words that can just be so common that we can look over them to try to substitute other words that maybe don't seem to have been pigeonholed as much uh, into that Christian talk. Uh, I have no problem with the word salvation. It's a biblical word. But when you think salvation, uh, think rescue. Think help. Uh, think uh, deliver or deliverance. And what comes to your mind when you think of needing to be rescued from something? Or, or perhaps you could say, when might someone need desperate help? Uh, I often think of someone who is drowning or someone whose house is on fire. Um, and not, not the drowning like they're just having a little bit of a hard time swimming. But the drowning where you, you've started, or maybe you already have, just you're sinking down to the bottom. And not just the house fire has started, but the smoke has filled the room, and you're unconscious. Okay, So we're not just like, oh, maybe there's a, there's a path forward for this person. Like, No, there's a desperation. If they were not rescued, if somebody else doesn't do something, they're, they're gone. They're dead. It's over. That's the level of danger that we're talking about and the type of help that we need. And so when we think of those scenarios, uh, you're doomed if you do not receive help. And then we think of, well, okay, well, that story can go well because someone in those, both those scenarios, maybe they are there to help. So if someone's drowning, sinking down to the bottom of the pool, no hope of oxygen, unconscious in this certain state and absolutely helpless, then you can think of a lifeguard. A lifeguard jumping into the pool, right? Putting themselves into that danger to come and rescue you. And when that lifeguard comes and gets you from behind so that you don't try to drown them and swims you over to the, swims you up and over to the side, lifts you out of the pool and then performs CPR to resuscitate you, if you begin breathing again, coughing out that water, and you come to, 
your immediate response is like, oh, good job, man, you and me, team effort. Right? No, absolutely not. If, you did, if I did that, right, all, uh, let's see, it's post-Christmas, so 200 and uh, something. Let's just not talk about that, but. All 200 plus pounds of me, and that lifeguard comes and pulls me out, like, oh, we did that. Be like, well, uh, there was no we, and, and your size made that a little bit more difficult than it otherwise could have been. Uh, you were saved from whatever you were drowning. You did not save yourself. Same thing with that house fire, right? You're unconscious having uh, inhaled that smoke. The fireman comes in, has to lift you up over his shoulder, take you out of the house. Once again, make sure that you have that oxygen. You needed saved. You didn't save yourself. And if you're in that type of a situation, there's no saving. And the credit doesn't come to you. The credit comes to your deliverer, your helper, or what we could call your savior in those scenarios. We need to be rescued. And if you need to be rescued, it means you can't do it on your own. And we need to be saved. We need a message of salvation because we are in danger. But what is that danger? What does the Bible tell us we need to be saved from? Well, the good news is a message of salvation from God's punishment of our sins. A lot of times we might jump right to we need to be saved from sins without with kind of missing. Uh, but I think this is a more accurate description of that. Because yes, there is a sense of, of being saved from your sins, uh, but this is where salvation is most clearly seen. It's actually a deliverance from God. Deliverance by God, as we'll see, but a deliverance from God and God's punishment of our sins. And there's a both and. It's not an either or. You think of somebody who, um, well, I picked on people the last time I taught this class. They're both here, and I don't have their permission to do it. So uh, if, if I had a severe allergy, uh, I have, well, fire ants doesn't quite work. Maybe, yeah, a fire ants, that works. Okay, so I have a fire ant allergy. I ended up at the ER one time working at a camp. I'm not going to share the rest of that story with you. Uh, one of the more embarrassing stories for me. Now you're all curious. I'm not going to tell you right now. Uh, so if I were to trespass on somebody's property, property and right, clearly to do that, in, in order to not just to have a lark, <laughs> sound British, uh, but just to go and maybe I'm going to try to rob them of something. And then while I'm doing that, I stomp through a, a nest, whatever you call it, an anthill of fire ants. They crawl up my legs like they did at the camp I worked at in Louisiana, bite me repeatedly, and then I end up going to the hospital. There are actually two things that need to be dealt with, right? Because I'm in danger from my folly, from my sin, but I also have the punishment that that deserves, right? So the doctor needs to save me from the danger that I'm in, but then there's also the guilt that the policeman's going to follow up with. So there is a both and of our, the sin has put us in its own danger, how it affects us, but then there's also the fact of our guilt before God. Both of those things we need salvation from, from the immediate consequences of my sin here and now, but from the eternal consequences of my sin against God, who is judge and lawgiver, right? I'm in danger, but I've also broken the law. Does that make sense? And we really do need salvation from both of those things, but, but the most ultimate is not I need a better life from the consequences and the danger that I'm put in immediately, but from this. 
God needs to save us really from his punishment that our sins deserve. Romans 3.23 is a passage that speaks about this problem of sinfulness. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means you. And that means me. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There's so many different pictures, and I'm thankful for them, that the Bible gives us to try to help us understand this this aspect of sinfulness, try to characterize it. You, me, everyone else in the world, we are all sinners. What does that mean? It means that we are enemies of God, rebels against him. And you may think, others may think, you know, that you and God get along just fine. No, I'm not not an enemy of God. I'm not a rebel against him, you know, as long as we both kind of stay in our individual spaces, like we get along just fine. Well, how do you respond when someone tells you that you must do something? Whether you, uh, I I don't respond well. (laughs) Whether it's something that I want to do, uh, that you tell me I must do, I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, And if it was something that I already didn't want to do, then I would respond even worse. And I think you're probably like that as well, right? You you get to do something versus you have to do something. And you kind of have that teeth, grit, what do you mean I have to? Who says? Why? Maybe I won't, right? Whatever that is, bed by 10, 10 right? Uh, 55 speed limit. You mean 57? You mean 60? You mean 65? Right? Whatever it is, it's like, what do you mean I have to? Right? We have that type of independent, personal will-driven independence, lack of submission, and then we come confronted by God. And God doesn't just make suggestions, uh, and God doesn't just give advice. God demands the right to tell you what and how you must do everything. As long as you stay in your own spaces and God says, actually, you don't have your own space. Everything that you occupy and everything about you is actually my space. Your breath, I've given you, right? Your life is, is from me. I own it and I own the world in which you live. Right? There's no space of real estate that isn't God's in all of the universe. And you occupy uh, his space in a body that he has given you, and he demands the right to tell you how you must and do everything. And you don't want that type of control over you. You want independent freedom from any external control, and it doesn't exist. And when we assert that, that is a rebellion against God. And when you rebel against a king, you're putting yourself as his enemy. Sin is also a spiritual debt, and we owe an unthinkable amount of maybe what we could call a righteousness currency. And we do not have that currency. If you owe $1,000 for breaking something, and you have zero dollars, you owe a debt you can't pay. It doesn't matter if it's $10,000 or a million dollars or a billion dollars. If you have nothing, 
It's equally unpayable. Uh, we have less than nothing. We're in the red. We, we are indebted spiritually. That's why it uses that. We can, and then there's that helplessness. And we cannot pay back what we owe. When we are guilty of breaking God's laws, guilty of violating his ways, we stand condemned by God as our eternal judge. Condemned. Guilty. Sentence is going to be meted out. Punishment will be endured. Well, what is that condemnation? What is our sentence? And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. The Bible regularly speaks of the reality of hell and the lake of fire, a place of suffering and eternal fire where God's enemies will be punished forever. A reality just throughout the pages of Scripture, an eternal reality. And that is the fate that awaits you, that would await me for our sin, our rebellion, our debt, our guilt. You, me, we deserve this punishment. And this is precisely where the goodness of the good news comes in. Because there is salvation, there is deliverance or rescue from God's right punishment for our sins. And it has come to us from God himself. The gospel, salvation through faith. Here's another one of those words that can just be so common that it just sort of washes past us. So I want to throw a couple other words to make sure that we're looking at it, maybe from a few different angles, to understand what we're talking about. So instead of thinking just faith, think trust, think believe. Maybe believe is too watered down. That one of those other words. Maybe trust is an aspect that I think continues to help us. And what does it mean to trust someone? And he, have you ever believed something, believed that wasn't true? Taking it to be true when it, when it wasn't. We were recounting dreams to each other the other day. I had this dream, only a few dreams that I really remember across the course of my life, but this one uh, was special to me. I dreamed that I was a Jedi, and I could use the Force. It was so cool, right? Star Wars, you guys are with me on this, right? Okay, so I could use the force, and I remember maybe like eight or nine years old, I could still picture where I was in the bunk bed, the layout of the room, and I woke up and I decided that I was going to use my awesome force powers to turn on the light switch across the room. And so I, I lit, this was not in the dream. I was awake, I reached out my hand just like, you know, Obi-Wan or, or Luke or Darth Vader to turn on that light switch and nothing happened. I was like, oh, that was a dream. Just a cold dose of reality. Even though I had believed it, it just wasn't true. Faith or trust or belief has often been explained as having three uh, components or three parts to it that I think are helpful to maybe differentiate between the I believe I have the force, uh, that's fiction, uh, to believing or trusting or having faith as we'll see in Christ. Three components. Uh, some have made it easy to remember, like uh, the faith component of your a head component and a heart component and maybe a hands component, right? Um, there have been other ways, even Latin terms, that can distinguish that. This isn't a new idea. When we're considering trusting someone or something, it starts just with that. It starts with a considering. We first think in our heads whether 
this person or this object, whether this is a trustworthy. What is it that I'm trusting in? And coming to an understanding of those type of things. Then we decide, and it moves from our head, moves from just content or intellect down into our hearts. To like, Well, do we want to trust it? Do we need to trust it? Like, I may think that I may understand the concepts of a particular diet, but I'm like, well, do I really need to do that? Right? Is it really necessary for me to change all these aspects of what I'm eating for that particular goal? Like, maybe it works. It's like, but do I really care? Right? So then if, if not, then it just stops, right? Nothing changes about that. But we move from that, that thinking about it to embracing a significance, like, what I'm seeking about trusting is actually something uh, that I need. This, this talk about if you're just kind of like, I'm not a sinner or I don't believe in that punishment, then everything's just sort of stopped from the head. There, it doesn't get into your heart. I mean, like, oh, I get what you're saying. I understand that that's what the Bible teaches, but I have a different solution. I don't actually need this concept of good news from what the gospel speaks. So your heart has made a decision in that and faith has stopped short. We want to trust it. Do we need to trust it? Then we actually trust it. And this has been likened uh, frequently to sitting in a chair, right? Is the chair reliable? Uh, Look at it, four legs. They all seem attached, right? It's not flimsy. And it's kind of like, you know what? And and I do want to sit down in this chair. Uh, But then then what do you got to do? That last part is the sitting in the chair, right? And not sitting and holding on to something else, I tried to demonstrate this at a, a deacon and elder training. I don't know if you guys remember that. I don't know who was there. Jason, were you there? And so I had a stool, uh, and I sat down very strongly on the stool, and it almost fell, which I don't know what that would have done to the illustration. I know what would have done. Ultimately, they would have laughed their heads off at me, as good brothers do. Uh, but thankfully, it didn't. The chair held up. Uh, again, I'm not sure how that would necessarily convey into salvation. Uh, It's also, faith has also been compared to walking out on a frozen pond or going ice skating. Uh, A year ago, I went disc golfing with Nash. Now, we are Valley Park, and there are two ponds in Valley Park that you have to throw near or across, and the one by 14, some of you are like, no idea what you're talking about. The rest of you already know exactly what I'm talking about. The pond was frozen over. Nash threw his disc, and it landed 15, 20 feet out on the pond. And so he decided to, with my encouragement, to go out, and he timidly walked out on the ice, and he got his disc, and he made it, made it back. And it was like, that would have been funny if that had gone otherwise, but it didn't. So he timidly did that. He made his way out, and he came back. Thankfully, he was safe and dry with his disc. But yesterday, I went disc golfing with a few of the guys here at church, and once again, someone threw his disc onto that same pond, and once again, the pond was frozen. And so he told us uh, that he really liked that disc. He'd already lost one like it, and he was going to go get that disc. So he did. And yesterday's temperatures were not what they were a year ago. We had 60s, right? Mid-60s or warmer. I'm like, I don't think that this is a very good idea. He's like, work. I'm going to do it. He's going out. Like, oh, okay. So he, so he shuffles his way out pretty boldly uh, on the ice, makes his way out gets the disc, and I was like, well, don't turn around. You've weakened that ice. So he starts to just shuffle his way back to the closest, makes it maybe 10 or 15 feet, and it just drops like a stone through the ice. Uh, It was only like up to here. I knew that he would overall be safe. Isaac ran to rescue. I just stood there and laughed, as did his buddies. His buddies actually just filmed the entire thing. They weren't going to help at all. Uh, I kind of wish I had the video, because he just 
dropped right down. I had to crawl, like crush his way through the ice. But he boldly walked out onto that ice, and then he boldly fell through and boldly got soaked. Uh, But the ice didn't hold for Nash because he was timid, and it didn't break for this other guy because he was bold. The ice held because the ice was strong, and the ice broke because the ice was weak. We can start to think about faith in those type of things, right? Considering the ice. Maybe if I go fast enough, it's like, well, you go fast or you go slow. If it's weak ice, you're going down, right? You go fast or you go slow. If the ice is thick, you're fine. Whether you feel safe or not, right, there's a fact to those type of things. But I may have thought the ice was strong enough for Nash, but I was on the shore, right? And I might have known, and I was right, that that ice was not strong enough for that guy. Either way, I was on the shore because of those type of things. Do you see how that connects to faith, right? That object, considering, well, what's the temperature been? Is this ice going to be strong enough? And maybe like, yes, I really think that it is. It would hold me. And if I stay on the shore, then you're like, I don't think you really believe. Because there is that demonstration of faith. And it moves through that type of cycle to those types. things. We're saved through faith, where there's that intellectual aspect of considering what the gospel says, and then an owning of its significance. Do you consider this good news from God found in his word? Do you consider it to be true and trustworthy? It's given as a historical message where there are facts to be historically considered. Well, do you consider those things to be true? The message about who Jesus is and what he has done. Do you, do you then grasp, if you're like, okay, yes, I think the Bible is reliable. I recognize these things about Jesus. Well, have you moved from just up here into a heart acceptance of your own need for it? A personal significance. And then are you trusting? Like, have you, have you sat in the chair? Have you walked out on the ice? And note that we are not saved merely by faith merely by the act of believing. It's not like you can just believe anything. You're saved through faith and through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because it's not really even something that is trustworthy, it's someone who is trustworthy. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a death as a sacrifice for our sins, and he rose gloriously from the dead. These are the historical facts of the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, like we read this morning, when he says, when you ask Paul, Paul, what is the gospel? Here's the answer that he gives. He said, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. I received it. I delivered it to you. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared. You see, his message of the gospel was not something about just starting with your response to something. It doesn't start with like how you feel and what you do. It starts with who is Jesus? So who is Jesus? What does the Bible say that Jesus is? Have you considered that? Continue to consider it. Continue to ask continue to answer, continue to trust. How does faith or trust in Christ respond to this message? Faith would say, this is true. Faith says, this is important. 
And faith says, this is mine. Do you see that cycle of those type of things? This is true. Your head, this is, this is important. This is of eternal significance that you embrace in your heart and, then say, and this is mine. Faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who was Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And that content of the gospel is not, doesn't just start with his life. It's not just what happened on the cross. But it's everything that led up to his life, through his life, and, and from his life. Jesus is true God and true man. That's like Emmanuel. We talked about that last week, right? God with us. The creator who became part of creation. The sinless one who entered a sinful world, right? All those different things that we mentioned. The glorious one who experienced shame. And the author of life who died for us. When we think about those, that distance between those two things. That all centers into the reality of the gospel that we believe of Christ. The gospel is, his first sentence, the gospel is the good news proclaimed in scripture of salvation from God's punishment of our sins through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the fact of the gospel. But then there's sort of the, if that's the fact, there's the response. Because that just is true, like whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. But that fact of that does not on its own save anyone because there's a response that happens to that. And that's what the second part of the sentence is. By repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ alone. See, that's the, the response to that fact, response to that truth, which is also part of the gospel. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 15, had said this, like, I'm going to remind you of this gospel. I did preach it to you. You did hear it. You received it. I think that's that moving from the head into the heart. You are standing in it. There's the, the hands. There's the, the, the trust aspect becoming visible. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. Repenting of your sins. Repenting is admitting that you have done what God says is wrong. There's an ownership. There's an admittance of it. There's not a making of excuses. God says you, you must not and you have, and you've been like, that's true. I should not have, but I did. Lie, hate, lust, steal, blaspheme. You ought not. You must not. In my world, with my breath, my blood coursing through your veins, but you have, and you saying, yes, I should not have, but I did. That's that first part of that, but then having a change of heart about it, where it's not like, yeah, I did it, so what? There's no repentance in that. Admitting that you've done what someone said is wrong, but not caring about it, repentance is a change of heart, saying like, yes, I did, and I hate that I did. Right? But it even doesn't even stop there. It's also a commitment to do what God says is right. The, the U-turn that we've talked about. And that's what repentance is. Not just like, this is the wrong direction. I should turn around, but I'm not going to. 
No, it's a, it's a turning around and then moving in the other direction. And we talked about that different parts, parts of Colossians. And then what's interesting is that this doesn't just happen once. Repentance is not a one-time decision. Repentance is a radical lifestyle shift, continually recognizing that you continue to do what God says you ought not to do and have a continual need of admitting that and turning in the other direction. And this is a shift that repeats endlessly, a life of endless humbling U-turns. That's what repentance is. It's often been said faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin, and Scripture frequently links them as well. That's why when we think about, okay, what do I do with these facts? What does it look like in my heart, and how does it demonstrate itself in my life? The answer across Scripture is repent and believe. And those aren't two works, and they're not separate. They're linked. I appreciate the simplicity of Mark's description of Jesus' preaching ministry. Mark chapter 1, it says this, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Okay, so we said, well, what is, what's Paul's summary of the gospel? Christ died for our sins, was buried, was raised, and appeared. Right? What's Jesus' summary of the gospel? He says this, the time is fulfilled. The promises are coming to fruition. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe this good news. Well, if you're in rebellion against that king, it's not good news. But Jesus, turn from rebellion, receive the king who has come. And you look at his ministry, who's the king? Jesus is the king. That's what he's saying. I, how profoundly arrogant would that be if it's not true? Where he's just like, the kingdom of God is here in your midst right now with me. That's a lot, right? But it's true. Repent and believe in the gospel by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone. Repenting and trusting, bringing those two things together. But the trust, we already talked about what that looks like. It's trust in Christ alone. There's so many uh, dilutions. There's so many perversions of this idea that are just rampant in our hearts and in our world and in various different religious ideas. Like, try your best and Jesus will do the rest. And whether you, it's, that sounds that pithy or not, it really comes across that way. Try your best, and Jesus will just make up the difference. That is not the gospel. That's not good news. Your best is lousy. And so is mine. And so is everybody's. Paul's best was better than your best. And he said, I don't want anything to do with my best. My best is garbage. Is your best garbage? Do you really need Jesus? Or do you think, nah, I've got this on my own? You don't. Do you grasp that yet? Are you willing to admit that? And it's not trust in Jesus and then add your works or something else. So not, not you and then Jesus kind of just makes up the difference. It's not trust in Jesus and then work, 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 work. We must keep a sharp distinction 
and a proper relationship between faith and works. They are separate, although they are related, right? The fruit of repentance would be a fruit of good works, okay? So, it, and the fruit of faith will be good works, but good works aren't faith. Faith without works is empty. It's dead. It's nothing. But there's still a difference between faith and works. You cannot bring those things together and try to, to make faith something that you do. That turns into the, the, that bold walking and trusting in yourself. We trust in Christ alone. Here we see distinctions of this faith and works in a number of passages. Uh, Titus chapter 3. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Do you see? He saved us. We were in need of deliverance, and he provided the rescue, and it had nothing to do with our works. It was according to his mercy. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, another classic text. Hear the word of God here. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? The firefighter, that lifeguard, it wasn't because you had been a good swimmer before or because you had your fire alarms tested properly that you then come and save. You didn't earn that. You were in a desperate need and were rescued from that. Not as a result of works, no boasting on your part. Salvation is from the Lord. It is a gift offered, not a reward earned. Salvation is provided by grace. It's not earned by works. And so don't fall into the trap of making faith a work. Faith is often expressed in prayer. I know I've said this a dozen times. I'll say it a dozen more. Yes, faith can be expressed in prayer, but there still is a difference between trusting and expressing trust. So if you think you are saved because you prayed a prayer, then you are trusting in a prayer. You're not trusting in Jesus. There is a difference. Don't ever look to words that you say or feelings that you felt or a date on a calendar. Look to Christ. That is faith. And that is just commonly miscommunicated or worse and misunderstood. Never trust a prayer. That's like a magic spell. We're going to talk about that more with the sacrament. It's not how God works. Because that becomes something that you did. Did I do it right? Was I bold when I walked out onto the ice? Contributed nothing. Trust in Jesus. What he has done is enough. And alongside of that, that enters into this series, don't make the sacraments a work either. We are saved through faith in Christ apart from the act of baptism and apart from partaking of the Lord's Supper. We're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to come to the supper and take of this bread and cup expressing we are followers of Jesus. No one has ever been saved by eating a piece of bread. Or by drinking juice or wine or anything else. Saved by Christ through trusting in him. Don't make the sacraments a work. 
and rest your salvation in them. That doesn't mean that we just push them to the side as if they don't matter, but that's next week's sermon. By repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ alone, we are reconciled to God. Here it is. We were enemies. Through faith in Christ, we are not enemies of God anymore. We were indebted, but we received forgiveness. And when your debt is paid, you don't owe anything anymore. Use the illustration, break a $1,000 window, you don't have $1,000, the, uh, let's see who can pick on. I'm going to pick on Kiki. Pick on you, buddy. If Kiki broke that window, would you do that to me, Kiki? Would you break our window? I don't think so. But if Kiki broke that window and he had to pay $1,000 to fix it, Kiki, do you have $1,000, buddy? Nope. So if he owes me a thousand, owes the church $1,000 to pay for the window that he broke and he can't pay it, and then Milton Thompson comes along and he pays $1,000 to fix that window, how much my man Kiki O. Zero dollars. But he didn't pay it. It was paid on his behalf. And when a debt is paid, nothing is owed anymore. You are indebted to God. You can't pay it. Jesus has made sufficient payment for you. And if you receive that, you no longer have any debt. And we receive we say we receive that reconciled to God, brought back into relationship with him, and we receive forgiveness of our debt, and we receive justification where God, the judge, bangs the gavel, and instead of saying guilty, he says innocent. The legal proclamation made, you are not guilty. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are accepted before God through your faith in Christ. And you receive, it's like, at each of these steps, just like forgiveness and like, it can't get any better. And then it just keeps getting better. So we end up with this uh, amazing reality that we receive adoption. Like God doesn't just say, it's like, all right, debt's paid, now go away, right? You're no longer my enemies, but I'm done with you. Or you can live as slaves in my kingdom. That all sounds great. Right? Better than the alternative of punishment. But that's not what this great, greatest news is of the gospel. Through faith in Christ, you don't just receive forgiveness. The debt's not just paid. You're not just set free without punishment and free to go. You don't go at all. Right? The judge has a second declaration. This, this righteous one, this innocent one, is now part of my family. Adopted into God's family. He's your father forever. And then we receive the hope of eternal life. Instead of fearing punishment in hell, we can look forward to a reward that we don't deserve and a rest that we shouldn't receive. Rest with God, with him in heaven and on the new earth, this rest that God is preparing for his people. And we talked about this again Last week, we should talk about it every week. <laughs> 49 minutes in. And have you stand up and shake. Just a couple more minutes. I could ask for your renewed attention because I must say something to each and every one of you. Every single person here. You must believe the gospel. You 
must believe the gospel right now. You must. I'm not saying that you haven't already done so before, but I don't care if you have believed. That's too strong. But we're not talking about something past. I'm talking about your need right now because you must believe the gospel again and again and again and again. Be, be renewed. Not, see, again, so if faith is just that one thing that happened, then it's like, you mean I just have to get saved a thousand times? That's not what I'm saying at all. But you must be constantly renewing your faith in who Jesus is and what he has done and living out repentance and faith and reminding yourselves of all these things. And that belief, believing in the gospel, does look different to different people at different times in your life. So maybe you must believe the gospel means I want you to grow and deepen in your knowledge of, appreciation of, love for who Jesus is and what he has done. I mean, that's that aspect of who it is. Where it's just like all it was for you is just like Jesus died for my sins, I believe it, and I'm forgiven. That is so true and so glorious. And there's a whole lot more that you can learn about it. So maybe you believing the gospel is deepening the fact that I know who Jesus is, I know what he has done for me, and just continuing to expand that. Maybe that's what believing in the gospel means for you. Maybe believing in the gospel means giving up on your goodness. So many times when we talk about our own goodness, what we mean is actually our betterness than somebody else. As if there's some sort of a curve. It's like, well, that guy's going to hell. I'm so much better than him. So I'm good. You're not good. And it's not graded on a curve. It's perfection, pass, fail, and you fail. You'll give up on your betterness. Believe the gospel. Maybe it is a, a receiving that undeserved, utterly undeserved gift of grace. Maybe you just are so convinced of your sinfulness that it's like, I could never Maybe God means that for somebody else. Maybe it's that opposite, right? I'm better, so of course I get saved. Maybe it's like I'm just so bad that there's nothing. It can't actually apply to me. It does apply to you. It's clear throughout Scripture that it applies to the, to the most unworthy, just like you and just like me. So receive it. Right? Don't worry about the details of like, well, God shouldn't make that offer. Maybe he shouldn't, but he has. Believe in the gospel of, of resting in Christ's sufficiency on your behalf. Strive, toil with a, with a guilty conscience. Receive rest. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest now and forever. Maybe it's that, that stop trying so hard, but maybe also you believing the gospel means embracing the transformation that comes with faith or working out your salvation, that's also an aspect of believing the gospel. Yes, you come as you are, but Christ never leaves anyone like that. Right? Embrace the transformation that he is working in your life. Believe the gospel. But lay down your opposition, your rebellion. Stop rebelling against God in your heart. Submit to his rule. His rule over you and over everything else. There's things that happened in the past that you didn't like, right, that would keep you from reconciling to God. Submit to his control. 
The fact that things aren't working out in the present to that, you don't want to follow the path. You know what God wants, what his will is for you, and you aren't interested in it. Don't do that. Stop proceeding in that rebellion and submit to what he has said and what he has called you to. Step down from your heart's throne. Allow him the rightful place of authority over all of you, now and forever. Believe the gospel. A long time ago, there was a man who had heard the gospel explained, and he wanted nothing to do with it. It sounded foolish. It sounded weak, and he was strong. Right? It sounded foolish, and he was wise. And we don't know what his opposition was. So whatever it was, just imagine that it's whatever your opposition is. And through an actual miraculous earthquake, God literally and metaphorically shook his world and brought his arguments and his opposition crumbling down to where he fell on his knees to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You and your household and anyone else. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved from God's punishment for your sins. We have the amazing opportunity now to move from hearing the gospel to to seeing and tasting the gospel. Do you know you could taste the gospel? Sounds weird. I would never come up with that. But it's what God has offered to us at the table. And we taste the gospel. It's, it's moved into, it's, uh, again, this is next week's sermon. I'll try not to do that. But that's what's happening here. It's like, come and receive the bread and the cup, the body and blood, the life and death of Jesus. Receive that and partake of it. And as you do that, and you taste that bread, Christ's body. You drink that cup, Christ's blood offered on my behalf. Rejoice. Receive the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Before we taste of the gospel, as offered to us by Christ himself, uh, we're going to sing from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, what a beautiful, powerful psalm, written by David. And David Not everything in David's life was easy. There were times of suffering and attack and enmity. And in this psalm, we hear of David's suffering. But prophetically, we hear through David the words of Jesus describing his own agony on the cross. So if you're not familiar with this song, it may even this the first phrase of this may sound striking. My God, my God, to you I cry. Oh, why have you forsaken me? But hear this. Because this is preparing our hearts for coming to the table. It's not that God has forsaken you. It's that on your behalf, God forsook Christ. Rejected him because he had taken your sin on himself. And so as you sing Christ's words of suffering through the the words of Psalm 22, do not forget that Jesus was enduring the torment and condemnation that your sins deserved. And only by his death can you be saved. And because he was forsaken by God, through faith in him, you can receive God's promise where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you because of Jesus. Father,
Thank you for the gospel. Again, I ask ears to hear, hearts to accept that you would work amongst us. Give us grace even as we sing these words to think of Christ as we come to this table. May it be a a strengthening of our faith in Christ who died and rose for us. Amen.